Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so thrilled to be joined today by Rachel Aviv. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes about medicine, education, criminal justice, and other subjects. In 2022, she won a National Magazine Award for Profile Writing. A 2019 National Fellow at New America, she received a Whiting Creative Nonfiction Grant to support her work on this book, Strangers to Ourselves. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. Rachel, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for talking with me. I have spent a few sleepless nights thinking about uh, your book, which I assume you will be hearing a lot. From my time working in book publishing, I kind of understand how much the industry likes a good soundbite or an easy answer or pres prescriptive advice even at the end of a book. And uh, what I love about Strangers, of course, is that you offer absolutely none. <laughs> um, I think like for the last few years, I've like lived, I, I like the moment at a dinner party or in a conversation where someone asks me to describe my book, I'm like panicking and trying to get out of it because I do feel like that sort of one sentence summary is really hard. It, it really, um, I'm impressed by whoever wrote your um, flap copy. <laughs> um, but I guess we should start with when you were six years old, you had an experience that you recount in the intro of your book, and it kind of shapes the way we read everything that follows. And I assume that's how it feels to you too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think for a long time, I kind of bracketed that experience, like, it was something that happened when I was six, it felt like this like freak event. I didn't talk about it with friends. Um, I think like, for a few years, my teachers treated me. Um, I remember like, my teachers asked my mom if they were allowed to get me in trouble. And like, that was the extent of it, because I seemed like a sort of vulnerable person. Um, but I think like, you know, anorexia itself is, and maybe I should say, so like in the opening chapter, I describe how I was six and I stopped eating and I was put on this anorexia unit in a hospital with girls who were in their teens and they kind of showed me like what it is to be anorexic and kind of, I modeled myself off of them and felt like I was like, they're a little anorexic in training kind of. Um, and ooh, Later on, I think I thought like, does anorexia felt like a cliche to me somehow, or um, like it felt boring to me, even though I, I feel bad, like it, that's not a right thing to say, but like somehow I just couldn't like access a way of thinking about it in a way that felt like true or meaningful to me. Um, but obviously it did shape, I mean, as a result, like I, you know, over the course of my life, like people offered different explanations for what had happened. It never mm. quite felt right. Uh, but I remember when I was writing for the New Yorker um, about these children in Sweden who stop moving and talking when their families are denied political asylum. It like something really resonated with me about how much like the social context, like there was this core of distress that these children were feeling and their social context really shaped the form that that distress took. And that idea felt like, like one of the core ideas, like how much, you know, we have this illness within us, but then we also sort of 
people respond to it and the way they respond to it also changes then the way we express it and the way it manifests and the role that it has in our lives. When it comes to hiring, you need to trust your gut. But what if you could give your gut some help? When you want to find top talent fast, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match at their job description the moment they sponsor the job. Something I love about Indeed is that with Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. Visit Indeed.com slash Maris to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash Maris. Indeed.com slash Maris. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's so funny because for for so many of us that came from watching lifetime movies and like uh, but but when we were older obviously um wait what lifetime movies oh, oh so yeah that, <laughs> like, like i feel like i learned um or i feel like i know so many people who learned um how to have anorexia by by watching oh i see what you're saying yeah yeah Right. Um, And whereas for me, it was like, I had no idea what anorexia was. I'd never heard that word, but like these girls seemed amazing and they were doing, they had like a different kind of value system and it, I could, was able to like absorb what that value was and that this is the way to achieve it. And then your behavior changed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you talk about the concept of the looping effect. Mm Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that like, so Ian Hacking writes about the looping effect, which is like that, like our classifications are not stable sort of. So like the, when we classify something, it then changes the object that is being classified when it comes to human behavior. And that is, that felt very true to my experience and also true when I was writing about these children in Sweden that like there was this framework to understand their behavior, which actually like reinforced it in some ways and made it, gave it momentum. Yeah, it's like telling ourselves stories to live, but also to um, satisfy our insurers. <laughs> We're lucky mm-hmm. to have insurance yeah. Yeah. and, um, and I think to like, make things make sense. Right, and one thing that, I struggled with was like those explanations and those stories can work really, really well. Like, I don't want to overlook the fact that like someone can get the diagnosis of depression and suddenly like it clarifies their life and it allows them to speak about it with their families. Um, I think 
what I was thinking a lot about was just how unpredictable those stories are. Like for one person, it completely feels liberating, but for another person, it's like, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and it feels like it changes the way other people see you and your identity is kind of evolving in that exchange. Absolutely. And so tell me about trying to get back into the headspace you might've been in before your diagnosis, which feels like it would be incredibly difficult. Yeah, I don't know that I can do that. Um, that <laughs> I think that's part of why reporting it was interesting to me because I just didn't have that much access. Like I, I remembered, I had these weird memories which were always so specific and concrete, um, but I don't have a memory. I, I have a memory of like feeling sort of empowered by how I could behave this way and and like my family responded like with great urgency and that was empowering um so I kind of remember that like vibe but I don't know what I was after like what what I wanted to achieve I just remember more like admiring you know seeing that these girls we're exercising or we're doing jumping jacks and thinking and internalizing the idea that like the jumping jacks sort of move, puts us forward on this step to like being a good person. And that not sitting down for dinner. Right. right yeah. Is, is virtuous somehow. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about how you chose the subjects you go to talk about in the book, because I imagine that's a problem for just about everyone who's not um, an introspective writer um, to, to kind of articulate what's going on in, yeah. in your minds. How did you help them? How did tell me it all? Um, I mean, a lot of the people I wrote about had already like created these paper trails of yes. their experience, like through journals and diaries and unpublished memoirs, letters, and that drew me to them, like for two reasons. One, because it was possible to like capture some of what they were feeling in the moment, like before other people's opinions of what had happened had shaped their read on it. Um, but also I think like those people tended to be people who, who sort of saw a value in telling their story. And um, I, was glad, like I wanted the people I wrote about to want to tell their story and to feel like they had something to contribute to a conversation about mental health. And that was part of it too. Um, but I, I think something that I was struck by towards the end of the book when I was like doing edits on it was just um, how beautiful and elegant their writing was. And yet they felt like they needed to sort of look to others to confirm if what they were feeling was real. Like there was this sense that like, yes, I can describe my experience, but I don't trust it. Um, and mm -hmm. I think like there is still the sense that like an expert or an authority kind of needs to see it and confirm that like your take on it is right. And I can imagine that um, in searching for other people's validation, um, for their narratives, mm -hmm. you had a really tricky role in that you were telling their story. Mm -hmm. um, and yet you, you leave things 
ambiguous as much as possible, which which I love. Tell me about the push and pull of that, though. I think it was partly possible just because I tried to incorporate their words so much. Um, like, obviously, this is not the story they tell. Like, one of them is going to write her own book. Like, there's a sense in which they will continue to tell their stories. Um, but I think it was it was amazing to be able to read their writing and then to ask them about the writing. Like so a lot of our conversations would sort of emerge from things they'd written years before. And then like, I would ask them to reflect on it today as a way of sort of getting a better picture of what was happening then. Um, so let's, before we start talking about individuals, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, American healthcare today and what role it may or may not have in um, keeping us healthy or not. Um, I'm gonna narrow my, that, my response. Right <laughs> I left it pretty open, yeah. Um, no, I, but I think in so many of the people I wrote about, the one of the things that they would articulate was like the most healing was just someone, whether it was a friend or like a librarian or um, you know, someone who'd been through somewhat similar experiences or shared their interests and kind of like saw what they were going through on its own terms. And I felt like you know, our healthcare or like reimbursement system definitely doesn't promote allowing doctors to have time to really like listen and make someone feel um, like many parts of their story are being heard, not just the parts that like be treated. And that kept coming through to me as, as like key to people's sense of well-being. Yeah, it seemed like even like, it, to me, it feels like such a crisis now in the past couple of decades. But mm -hmm. even when you um, talk about Ray, um, eventually that um, privatized healthcare comes in and, and kind of ruins. Right. I mean, I thought Ray was, you know, his life was devoted to like demolishing the idea of the hospital of Chestnut Lodge, which had been the place that had wanted to treat him psychoanalytically. Um, but I, but I was sort of moved by the humanity of Chestnut Lodge as an institution and, and this idea they had that like, if you listen to someone, if you pay close enough attention, like eventually that person will make sense. Like the idea that you're not understanding someone means that you're not trying hard enough. And that is such like a beautiful idea. And yet Ray, because he'd been denied medications kind of wanted to throw the whole thing out. And, and it did ultimately, um, you know, stop existing. And I think that, but that was because of the pressures of once medication emerged as a treatment, it was so much more, you know, you, you could, you could achieve it so quickly and it was quantifiable and it was um, like, it was hard to ever return to a scenario where just talking was supposed to be the cure. Right, right. I, I still feel like I, I hear a lot of people talking about talk therapy versus mm -hmm. medications, like it's a binary choice mm -hmm. and you 
can't do both, mm-hmm. which again, is it that, is it just my OCD or <laughs> right. is everyone just trying to put things in neat little boxes? All right. No, I think the idea that there's a binary, I mean, that's what I was hoping that chapter would do in a way like that, that there are these two prominent paradigms for psychiatry. And I don't know why it has always been seen as an either or uh, why it can't be both, why um, these feel like the only two options. And I think like psychiatry has moved away from that to some degree. Um, but in each of the chapters, I was struck by like the, uh, the lack of possibility for like multiple explanations and frameworks to coexist. Yeah, and uh, correct me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Bapu? Bapu, yeah. Bapu, um, her story um, illustrates that so compellingly because uh, one, you, you're, you're introducing us to um, how another culture um, copes with mental illness mm-hmm. and what other religions think of as quote unquote crazy. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I did worry about that too, that it was creating a binary. Like I didn't want to create this binary of like you're a saint or you're a schizophrenic. Um, because it felt like she, in a way she ran away from home because, because at her home, in ho- at her house, she was seen as like a bad mother and a bad wife. And then she would run away to these healing temples and she was really embraced for being like an incredible poet who had access to the divine. Um, but it felt like she always had to choose and like to be in these healing temples meant losing her family and her community, which is like a source of grief. Um, and then the reverse was like to live at home, but to be seen as this failure uh, and, and to have her like gifts not taken seriously or not sort of valued as what they were. Yeah, and you even mentioned um, a study that suggested that um, mental health treatment in, in the East is probably, it is, could be more effective because you're so very careful. Mm-hmm. Like about... I, and I don't even know that I say that, but I mean, not... <laughs> I'm sorry for putting <laughs> words in your no, mouth. But there, but, but there have been studies like WHO studies that show that um, recovery rates for schizophrenia seem to be better in places like India in certain countries in Africa. And, and but like, no one really knows why. Um, and there've been lots of different theories and some people say, well, the studies aren't right anyway, but I think some of the most interesting theories to me are about um, one, one idea is that like in, if you're someone in India who's talking to the gods and there's a different relationship with the self, like uh, the anthropologist Tanya Lerman writes about this a lot. Like in, in um, it's, if, if some if voices are talking to you, like in New York City, it's like an invasion of this like sacred sense of self and like your boundaries have been violated. Whereas if you're in India and there are voices talking to you, there's a slightly more fluid sense between like what is oneself and outside of oneself. So that has been one theory. And another theory is more about like community, the way people live like here you live alone and if you're sick you get government help or nothing um but like 
you're not taken in by the family and the community in the way that you might be in another culture. Yes, you you warned many times in that chapter of giving in to the idea of yeah. magic. Right, I don't want to romanticize yeah. something that has like incredible hardships on its own terms. Yeah, and tell me a little bit about her family too. It's a, it seems like you really got to know them pretty well. I, she just, it was, I think one of the things when I was writing the book was you know, I thought I was writing like individual stories and I was had been really interested in the idea of case studies as a form, um, but it seemed absurd to think that these were individual stories, like they were so much family stories and they ended up being so much about like how um, illness shapes multiple generations. And I, I found it amazing that like Bapu's children, like their lives, were so much about what they'd experienced with their mothers, although they had taken two different views of it. Um, her one son, her son thought that like he'd had, saw his mother as this sort of spiritual um, like inspiration. And his, her daughter saw that too, but like was very, but did feel that she also had a medical illness that like wasn't treated properly. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the the next case study you do is is so focused on intergenerational mm -hmm. trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, tell me how you got to Naomi and, and her family. So one of the things that is that drew me to Naomi was um, she had lived in this this government housing um, complex in Minnesota. And like she ended up uh, harming her twins, throwing them off the bridge and in into the river and one died. And a few years earlier, there had been another mother living in like a few houses down the road who'd done the same thing. And this is like an extremely unusual crime. And I did, think like what was in the air or like what was in the atmosphere that this like extremely rare unthinkable thing occurred in this place and I was interested in like you know they were both women of color and these this homogeneous space but that's sort of that's what drew I was just sort of interested in that intersection but ultimately I think it was the way that Naomi um you know sort of could talk about her psychotic break on multiple different registers like when she first began to experience psychosis like she, the the thing that felt most prominent was like the scales are falling from my eyes I'm understanding like the way the black mothers in America are treated and have always been treated and I'm, of course I'm suffering like this is black mothers have always been suffering and the idea that like psychiatrists would swoop in and say no you have like a illness felt very um, hard to digest and sort of alienated her because she felt like the things that were causing her distress were not the things that were being talked about. Yeah, and um, if a group of people have been repeatedly wronged, they mm -hmm. it's it, that's very depressing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um. In the context of Naomi a little bit, you talk mm -hmm. about also um, how 
the closing of the asylums that we're used to um, hearing about mm -hmm. from like the 60s and back um, began to close and that was such a good thing and everyone was going to be released and reintegrated back into their communities except that they never got to the reintegration part yeah yeah it's like such a tragic moment in history because it was like there was such idealism that you know medications would solve this problem like you can get rid of all these old awful institutions and we'll treat people in the community and like the president changed the administration changed and just like money was never devoted to that purpose and it sort of fell away as a priority and so there was this shift from all these people being institutionalized in hospitals to people being institutionalized in other ways, like in jails or prisons or um, sort of moving in and out of shelters. And it felt like like the a horizontal change as opposed to progress. And and you talk about how um, the number of women of color in a prison is uh who who suffer from mental illness is is just always going to be larger because if 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 a white woman did the same thing mm -hmm. she mm -hmm. might not yeah sick. right and the, then the disproportion sort of continues even like in the landscape of the prison as far as like who is in solitary confinement who is in segregation who is like seeking out mental health care yeah and it's really wild to think of a world in which solitary confinement is a just punishment and doesn't exacerbate every single problem. <laughs> right. I remember thinking at one point, like solitary confinement seems like the, you know, America, where there's such a like individualistic approach to mental health and the idea that like, the people who have mental illness are then put into solitary confinement because they cut themselves because they were trying to commit suicide like that felt like this like cartoon of american healthcare like we're just going to put them entirely alone in a box and and that's how we that's how we deal with it that's going to get better um sorry and 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 so your your last case study um is kind of the overprivileged extreme yeah. to, to Naomi's story. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about Laura and her life is great. Why, why should right. she be? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, so Laura, you know, grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, went to Harvard uh, at some point was diagnosed with bipolar in college and a little bit earlier as well too, and then got on like 19 different medications over the course of a decade. And yeah, it was almost like a very different thing was happening with her where I think doctors were seeing her life and it sort of looked ideal. So like it, she couldn't be responding to circumstances. Therefore, this is like a biological problem we'll fix with biological solutions. Um, and I think like she never sort of ex she liked that idea. It was like, there, here's this technology that will fix this thing that is wrong with me and sort of got into it. Like she was like an A student doing all these things. Um, and then at some point realized like she didn't really know who she was without the medication. She didn't know, like 
she'd sort of grown up without knowing what her baseline was. Um, and also I think there was like there, there were environmental issues that were causing her suffering just in the way that there were with Naomi, like of a different scale, but still um, like it, it seemed like because her life looked so good, those, those environmental issues were sort of seen as relevant. Right, right. And, and I, I do absolutely understand the impulse to want to say, I'm sick, I take a pill, I get better. Yeah. It's so much, uh, yeah, it sounds great. Like it's just, if it works, but it, it like she gradually said, saw that what just wasn't working. She wasn't getting better. And and so she um, went off her meds and um, it, it took a while. <laughs> um, and she is now active though in, in a community of people who um, believe that being off the medications is is the way to live right and to me like it seemed like you know what she did was she found people who'd gone through similar experiences and were she found a sense of fellowship like i i questioned whether going off medications was the solution or whether the solution was like finding people who mm -hmm. see the world and and value you and sort of are able to talk about she she found like-minded like support or supportive people and i think that was you know she had been so alone before and this is where you kind of come back into the narrative um in a way that is preventing me from sleeping um oh, no. <laughs> so you and i both take ssris <laughs> Um, first, I don't even know if I realized that there was a stereotype of the kind of woman who might be taking these drugs. Mm. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's a stereotype. It's something that's in my mind. And then I definitely, it was something that pharmaceutical manufacturers recognized, like the ideal target audience was going, was a white woman. Ambitious. It, it, during during certain periods yeah i mean i think now they're probably not they're trying to broaden the pool. diversify <laughs> um but definitely like in the seven it, when when ssris first came around in the late 90s um wait sorry i think i got that wrong i don't know if you're you're cutting stuff right we're cutting so you can start again uh, so i'll say when when ssris first came around um i think it was very much like this woman who wanted to have it all um couldn't because she was so stressed out and like take the edge off this will help you sort of be a professional success and a domestic success and they weren't wrong i know <laughs> I mean, that's like confusing and frightening thing yeah um when i when i think about um the idea of trying to get off it sounds frightening yeah. and then it also sounds um i too have no i rem like remembrance of of who i am yeah i also think it's this weird thing for women like what um not yeah you know, if a woman wants to get pregnant then it does become this yeah. 
it becomes a more fraught issue. Like, do I stay on? What are the costs? What are the benefits? And that, and that is like why I experienced, experimented so much with going off. Um, Cause yeah, I just didn't know. Uh, but then you're like, I, I don't have a result. I'm not resolved on, um, and I'm sorry to introduce the anxiety of it. <laughs> There's so much anxiety around it though. Yeah. Um, no, but um, it's really lovely to have another way to think about things. Um, thank you so much for your time and this wonderful book. Before thank we you. go, would you like to recommend some books for us? Um, it's funny when you asked me that you were, when you told me you were going to ask this question, I was thinking about what I used to say. Like I was remembering when I was younger, I would always say that Grace Paley was my favorite writer. And then I was thinking like, well, I haven't read her in a long time. And so I looked up, I was on the subway like an hour ago and I looked up once um, the, the essay once by Grace Paley, or I guess story. And felt like really amazed by how much like I felt like actually now I understand it I had no idea mm -hmm. what it was saying before um it like spoke to the aging process in a way that I wasn't able to understand when I thought it was amazing when I was 20 um another book uh that I have loved recently is Stoner by John Williams and I think I just loved the idea that like you can take a life and you can basically write a biography of it. And that is like this like multi-layered tragedy and, and the experience of reading it and, and feeling like, okay, that's a life. Like that is what happens in a life. And, and it, but it feels like a resolution. Uh, yeah, I'll recommend that. And then if you want me to do one more. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, in terms of like writing about psychiatry, one of the books that made me want to write about this subject was Modernism and Madness by Lewis Sass. Um, and he kind of describes this overlap between modernist writing and the experience of schizophrenia. And like, it was the first time I'd ever seen someone like try to go really deep into the like day by day subjective experience of how one's like sense of the world changes and sense of oneself changes um, in mental illness. Um, and I really loved that book. Thank you. I'm going to check that out. <laughs> Rachel Aviv, Strangers to Ourselves. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.